Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Heat Minute, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes, and more. And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together. But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. Welcome back to It Came From The Deep, the narrative podcast series about It Came From The Deep, (laughs) my sci-fi young adult murder mystery novel. And to discuss chapter one and some of the specifics that we talk about, I have a very special guest uh, with me this week, Uh, one of my oldest and nearest and dearest friends, the, like, historically looking at the stats, Australia's greatest ever Iron Woman, uh, Courtney Hancock. Welcome. Thank you. That's the best intro. I absolutely love that because it is. You know, we've been friends for so long. Yes. So it's been, yeah, we, we've been through a lot. So I'm just, yeah, so proud of you. So when you asked me about it, I was like, um, absolutely. I would love to because not only are you a beautiful friend of mine, but you inspire me every day. So oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, this is getting embarrassing for people listening now. You never take a compliment. Everyone who knows you never take compliments. So I just hit right in there with the intro. Mate, that's why I'm going to therapy, okay? I'm trying to learn how to take compliments and deal with this shit. <laughs> growth, baby, growth. Um, no, but you raise a good point because we've been friends for a really long time, but we knew each other, um, I want to say, like, maybe around when we were 13, 14, like that's sort of around the first time because you used to compete for New South Wales in surf life saving. I used to compete for Queensland. And so we would see each other at those like Australian title or state versus state things. Cause we didn't compete for the same club. So I always knew of you and, um, and you always had <laughs> so stupid, but this is like such a teen girl thing, but you always had like really pretty swimmers and it would always stick out in my mind because surf life saving is especially one of those sports where, um, anything feminine, they like want to sand off. You know what I mean? They want to sound down anything that's feminine to like make you more masculine in a way. So it's like, it's more accepting cause it's like a boy's sport. And like a boy's arena. And I always remember you'd have like pink glittery swimmers and just like the prettiest shit. And I would always be so in awe of that, which is such a teenage thing to obsess over. But anyway. <laughs> no, I, I love it because it's so true because I used to wear hot pink swimmers. Like, I was like, I need the brightest swimmers like possible. Um, and then I'd have sparkly pink nail polish and I'd have pink little stone earrings you know, when you're little and you have little yes. stones right the chemist you yes. got yeah um and then I had pink ribbons in my hair um and yeah I kind of still do that today apart from like yeah I've probably swept away from the little stone thing and matured a little bit with my earrings but um quite unquote yeah, matured on that I actually I'm so about color like you mm. are you know sometimes well, a lot of times you can express like how you're feeling or who you are as a person and everything like that and so my colours I got this year, I've always been pink and gold, but this year I've gone half pink and half red. So I used to have red when I was younger and red's like a sign of strength. So I've gone red and I've also gone pink because I feel like being an Iron Woman, well, especially myself, there's like to achieve at my best. I feel like I really, in myself, I have that 50% of, 
me my feminine soft side because you need to relax and be calm and, and kind of be with the water and then I have to have my other side which is strong and powerful and so that's how I'm going my board this year going a little deep that is, that's deep I love that though I always used to have a strategy too so look I'm just going to break down self-life saving because the reason I wanted you to have to be a guest on this particular episode is in chapter one um, of It Came From The Deep, it's the first introduction of the idea of surf sports to the audience. And for people who don't know what the fuck that is as a sport, it's essentially like I would always describe it to people as competitive Baywatch. And that aspect of my life feels like a long time ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. But those things that you do in your formative years really end up shaping who you are. And it's a sport that I have always thought requires so much of a person and they get so little back in terms of there's very few people who can make it professionally in surf sports. Um, It's a very dangerous sport. Like the stakes could not be higher. The stakes are literally death in many cases. And it's a sport that doesn't necessarily get the attention or love it deserves especially considering how much you put into it. And because we both competed uh, for the same club and we were like coming up around the same time, obviously you were actually good. (laughs) I dropped off the circuit like in my early 20s. But for people who aren't aware, could you explain like what an Iron Woman is? Like what does that actually mean? Yeah, so it is, yeah, uh, like I guess within a sport of – surf life saving so as you explained it there before you got Baywatch but take it yeah (laughs) not as dramatic um you've got your lifeguards on the beach they're you know obviously employed by the council and then you've got surf life saving which is all volunteer so you see um everyone on a Saturday Sunday you know all different clubs around Australia they're wearing the red and the yellow and they're all volunteers so they've all gone through their surf club they've done their bronze a lot of them have been a part of nippers and grown up and um, so Surf Life Saving is a massive community. So we've got so many um, ventures that you can steer into and that starts all the way from your little nippers. Uh, a lot of people do nippers um, because they want their kids to be surf safety, basically. Um, and some of the kids get into, they rip in, get really competitive and then they want to kind of get into racing and all that kind of thing. So that's that's your sports side and then you go to your cadets and then you can go to, your, you know, I guess your top level is your Nutri-Grain Ironman, Ironman series, which, um, you, you know, you bring back to the days of like Carla Gilbert, Trevor Hendy, um, Grant Kenny, um, all, you know, calling out a golden movie. Like it's, you know, it's a very... Um, <laughs> oh, that Australian classic movie. <laughs> I know, how, can we, how can we forget that? So you've got that side where you can get to the top level there from the little ones to, you know, getting to professional. Um, but then you do have the other side where, um, as I said before, you've got people who they just want to do their patrols. They want to volunteer. They want to be a part of a the community. They want to help people out. Um, and then, yeah, and then you've also got your, your social races, your social people who do, um, you've got your masters who, you know, uh, age from 30 plus, which is crazy because I'm over 30 and can do masters now. I won't be at this present moment, but I can. And they can go right up to, you know, when you're 70, um, you've got March Pass, you've got Beach Events, you've got the Cooling Out of Gold is an event which is like, um, you know, it's a community event. Um, you don't have to have your bronze or anything like that, be a part of it. It's a marathon race. So it's it's got a lot of areas that brings it into, um, which can get complicated, I feel. That's when you were talking about before. Um, the professional side is sometimes not recognised like it should be because I've got you've got AFL, you've got netball. All those um, sports are just known as a sport. We've got so many other 
areas um, that it can kind of get lost into. And, you know, it's um, Surf Life Saving is, you know, a charity as well as, you know, a, a charity organisation. Um, and, yeah, at the end of the day, the main purpose is to save lives around Australia. Um, so I obviously fall into that area, um, doing my patrols and looking after people. Um, that's essentially why I started it, to be able to look after myself and other people. And then I have well, I was fallen into, or maybe I was really competitive, fell into that um, professional side of things. And, um, yeah, it is my full-time job. I'm a professional athlete. Um, and it's trying to get those two areas um I guess, joined together without being divided against each other. So that's always been a big goal, I think, in surf life saving. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that you make because I think that is a big part of one of the reasons why you don't see many stories set within the world of surf life saving in pop culture. Like you genuinely have the Cool and Get a Gold as a movie, which is considered – if you've never watched that movie before – um, you can actually watch the full thing on YouTube for free. <laughs> it's a bit of a kitsch Australian classic. Like it's a mix of, we had a lot of Australian athletes, um, filling in the acting roles because you needed to be able to perform certain things physically that you really can't even train a stunt person to do. Like the skills that you have in the surf are things that can't be learned in six weeks. They're really like lived experience, but it is a tricky thing to like explain in the context of a movie or a TV show. And with it came from the deep setting this world, setting this like murder mystery with a merman in the world of surf life saving. I was constantly sort of trying to balance, um, making it interesting for the reader so that they were getting to learn about surf sports and how competitive it can be, but also how scary it can be but in a way that wasn't speaking down to people so that if you were familiar with clubbies and clubby culture, that you didn't feel like it was an info dump. But as somebody who has spent, um, let's say how, how long of like 20 years, would you say 20 years of your life living and working and breathing surf sports? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When you say like, yeah, working, I'd, I'd say go pretty close to that. Yeah. So for someone who spent, like two decades now in this industry and in this business and in this sport, can you break down what a day of your training schedule looks like? Like not in current pandemic times, obvi, because everything's on pause right now. But you know, like when we were living together and training together, like what's your daily schedule like? Um, so like a, a normal day would be wake up at four thirty. And I'm just looking at face right now. We're on Zoom uh, for people. Like, obviously, you can't see us, but that is like to this day when I have nightmares, and like I'm a grown ass woman. Courtney and I are born like a month apart, but when I have nightmares now, it's not about like book stuff or career stuff. It's always about surf life saving stuff, and it's usually always about waking up early and having to go do laps. I'll put a link in the show notes to a piece that I wrote for the Guardian on it, but it's like traumatic. Like I'm not a morning person to this fucking day because I used to hate those early mornings so much. <laughs> Getting up and going to busy park. Yeah, it's your birthday soon. It is. Very yeah. soon. Yeah. Very soon. Very soon. <laughs> it's just been yours. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'm at 4.30 um, in the pool at about 5, um, swim for two hours, which goes from anywhere from, yeah, 5 to 6.5 Ks. Um, and then out of the pool and then um, I'll be generally it'll either be a run or a gym session. So a run can be 
kind of, you know, up to eight to 10 Ks, which, you know, over an hour, um, that'll be straight after. And then gym, if I did gym and go for about an hour and a half. So come back, have a rather large breakfast. Um, and yeah. And I, I guess when I was younger, I used to be able to sleep. Yeah. But now there's just too much stuff on. I hate getting older. There's just like, it's always something to do. No, I do love it. Like there's, I've got a lot of cool projects and stuff going on. So usually it's pretty busy throughout the day. Um, I try and get maybe just lay down for, um, you know, even if it's half an hour or 45 minutes. And even if I don't sleep, I, I try and every day take out a bit of time for me. Mm. Even if it's just a little bit of meditation. I mean, meditation can just be lying on the floor. Or watching Buffy, <laughs> you know. Just, you know? Just, yeah, yeah, or watching Buffy, like, yeah, both as equally as enjoyable, probably Buffy more so enjoyable, um, but very soothing and relaxing and, yeah, probably on a movie or just, like, taking some time just to, to relax and then um, back in the afternoon for an hour to an hour and a half and that'll either be a ski paddle or a board paddle back, you know, out in the surf. So, um, it's, it's yeah, it's certainly a busy week and um, more so now my age to when I was 17, I could just 17, I'd go three sessions a day, all day, every day, yeah. round and round like a little bunny. But now I've just got to go, okay, um, you know, I've had a really big day today. I've been training as well as filming since 5am, so I haven't had a rest. So I'm having this afternoon off um, and that's okay because, you know, I have to, I know that I've got the... Yeah, I, I know that I've got all those years of background um, in my body, so to have a bit of recovery is actually going to be better for me than, than flogging myself. But, yeah, it's a pretty big day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you're like, oh, casual, you know, like six to seven hours of training a day and back in the sort of like earlier stages um, when we were both coming up, yeah, like, I, yeah, obviously if you could get a sleep in after morning training and after swimming session, gym and run or whatever – you would, but we also used to work in between that. Like I would go off to the newspaper. You would probably pick up a waitressing shift at, um, at the surf club from memory. Like, and then you would do your like midday session, which we, you know, could be anything from soft sand running to waiting or like anything horrible, like the midday session for whatever reason always felt like the worst. And then you'd go back to work and work again for as long as you could and then come back and, we used to do these things, um, which this is like clubby deep cut. So I'm explaining it for people who wouldn't know what it is, but we used to do these things with our old cat coach, um, Pat O'Keefe, who has passed away, he passed away quite a few years ago, but he used to do these things with us called paddlebacks where he would drive us <laughs> across the border, across the New South Wales, Queensland border, drop us off at Snapper Rocks usually, or somewhere around there and make us paddle back to Northcliff, which geographically is what, like 40 Ks, maybe a bit over? 24 Ks. 24, <laughs> fuck. I'm like, just double it. <laughs> I should have said that. <laughs> just double it. Felt like definitely 40. Oh my God, I can't believe that's only 24. Okay, 24 Ks. Yeah. I totally exaggerated that, but I will. Th- this it's is. Not if you went on a zigzag, oh. easily could have found up 40. And also it would be 40 if you were going along the coastline. And so what we all used to try and do was to make it shorter is you would paddle from one tip of the coast to the other and the coast would run inland like a C shape. And so you're trying to go from one end of the C shape to the other, which means at certain points of the paddleback, you would be fucking kilometers out at sea, spread out by yourself, usually at night because sunset would happen around that time 
And you had to find your way back to the surf club using the sky rises of surfers paradise as your reference point. Cause that's all you could see. I thought you were pointing to your head then like my head torch. Um, yeah. Did you have a head torch? So smart. A head, a oh head torch would be amazing. A head torch would have been a game changer. <laughs> I know. I know. It used to be so scary and, you know, people would do this, like we started doing it maybe like I want to say we were 16 or 17 and yeah. that would usually be the youngest they would let you do it because it genuinely was dangerous because you would see sharks out there, you would see whales. All sorts of shit. And if the surf was big, <laughs> which you kind of hoped that it would be. Yeah, you sort of wanted it to be big so you could get a get a good run in and like make it a little bit shorter, but you know, scary times. Um, what is yeah. the largest surf you've ever been out in? Oh, the largest surf. Um I have to be Portsy in Victoria. Always Portsy, um, huh? Yeah. Always big, always gnarly. I remember rocking up there as probably a 21-year-old, I reckon. So I started to ski really late, um, as Maria said before, like New South Wales, um, really small town, Sawtell. So I only really jumped on a ski when I was probably 17. Mm. I mean, probably the first year I made the series, I hopped on it a couple of months before and, and just kind of, you know, taught myself how to ski paddle, which was ridiculous. Um, That's actually so surprising to me. I had no idea you started it so late because, like, you're actually, like, legit – I mean, it's different now. You've been doing it for, you know, over 10 years. But um, I never saw that as a weak point for you. And for people who don't know, like, Iron Woman is a sport where you have to have – you have to be proficient across four or five different disciplines. You have to be able to swim. You have to be able to run. You have to be able to board paddle and you have to be able to ski paddle. And an Iron Woman race ties all of them together. And so you really can't have a weak leg. Like swimming was always my weak leg. I was always pretty shit at that, but I was good on a craft. Whereas like, I think one of your biggest strengths as a competitor, besides your endurance and resilience is you don't really have a weak leg. Like you're equally dominant across all of them. Thank you. Very, very, I was just thinking of you swimming training with the flippers on. Don't. gave me some, some visuals. And Gross. We'll move, we'll move on that so we don't get <laughs> got, um, nightmares tonight. But, um, yeah, so I started so late. Um, but, um, and so obviously coming to Portsy, um, so I'd only been on a ski for a couple of years. Um, and as you explained before, like, it's, you know, it's a massive craft. It's, it's actually very difficult to, you know, I, I was teaching someone the other day to paddle it. It is very hard the first time you get on there. So, I guess going into that, um, you know, as probably the one of the least experienced on a ski um, was, yeah, it was pretty intimidating going over there. It was nine to ten foot. Um, so that's ginormous. Um, and, yeah, I kind of just got out there and I think being at that age and, I don't know, a few screws loose in my head, I just didn't have any fear. I just absolutely charged, absolutely charged. But, um because of that reason, I actually ended up winning the series, the Nutrigrain series that year, um, you know, from just having no fear and, and, and not worrying about the experience I had. And um, But, yeah, 9 to 10 foot, I tell you what, there was some – Oh, I had to hold my breath, I remember. It was, doesn't seem like a long time, but 20 seconds underway, 20 to 30 mm. seconds, I remember. Um, it was black. It was really dark and, um, and you're tired and all those kind of things. I remember going under and just like – yeah, that was, that was probably pretty scary, I think, probably swimming out there more so than anything. But, um, yeah, I remember this one this one wave was about, yeah, 10 foot um, on, the, um, on the board. And I just made it over and 
Oh. I was like doing my prayers. <laughs> I actually took the moment. I remember I didn't even paddle fast. I just like, I remember my heart rate was so high. I just like, took a moment to go. <sighs> You're making my heart race now. Like just thinking like there's truly, it's really hard to explain that, like that experience of like, that adrenaline you feel when you're paddling out towards a set, right? And, you know, depending on the timing and the conditions and the circumstances, like if you're starting with a craft, like first, sometimes you can time things well, you can count how many waves are on a set, you time the difference between a lull, which is when the waves are smaller or less than. And so you can plan like a strategic break or you can paddle, you know, to the left or to the right. There's a rip here. If I use the rip, I can get out quicker, but sometimes you just can't plan and like it's it's the environment you know what I mean like you can't plan a strategy with waves all the time and that feeling of like knowing you have to make it past the break to the calm water which is on the other side and you can just see these like mounds of waves coming and there is nothing you can do on a board you can pop which is like you sit at the back of the board and you try and pop over the wash or you roll, which is like you hold onto the straps and roll under the wave, which, um, the, <laughs> yeah, hope for the best, which is, um, what the main character Kaya does, Kaya Craig in this chapter, but on a ski, <laughs> your choices are so limited. Back, you it is, is it you back paddle or go, or just sprint as hard as you can. I don't think I've ever back paddled in my life. Cause I've just never seen that work out well. I'm always just like, you know what, if this is, if it's like seven foot and it's going to break on my head, it's better if I'm going at it fast than like me trying to you're back paddle, you know? You're a boss. Why am, why am you interviewing? I should be interviewing you because I have back paddled like I cut countless times. Yeah. Well, there's probably, a, there's one of us is a multi-time Australian champion and the other <laughs> is fucking making up stories. And I wonder which of those is, uh. <laughs> promoting back paddling as a strategy and it's not you. So maybe that says something, but, um, I have so many memories of like being at training and being the stretch. We were at Northcliffe surf club. Um, when we were both, when I was in the sport, Courtney's still in the sport. I'm not, but when I was in it, we were at the same surf club together and the stretch of beach that is on is, open. There's not really much protection. Um, you don't have a headland situation, which is like, you know, that means that you can oftentimes get a permanent rip that will run alongside a headland or you get certain surf. But I just have so many memories of us (laughs) being at training and having to do these things called sharkies, which is when you would paddle out around the shark nets and come back in. And Courtney always being the fastest and the best would be coming back in as I'd be heading out and me just like screaming and having to yeet myself over a crest of a wave <laughs> and just seeing Courtney's face on the other side, you know, it was just, Oh, there she is again. Okay. Courtney's Courtney's cool. She's literally laughing you and you're just trying to fucking scale it down a wave. But, um, you know, I love that you brought that up because sharkies, right. So they're like the shark nets and we're going around the shark boy connected to the shark nets, which has a hook underneath which is meant to catch sharks and then they let them go free on the other side. So little did I know those cans after years, they were paddling around the bloody, where the shark would be. So yeah. I refuse to paddle around it. I cheat. I was telling everyone, I was like, look, I'm going to turn five <laughs> metres, not cheating, 
can do the same if you want to, but I was like, I refuse to pile around that. Yeah, it's a common misconception because people think shark nets mean that there is a protective net around the beach. And that's like geographically impossible, not only just because of surf and currents, but also the size. And so the places that are shark netted, if you will, it's like that length of a net is like a hundred meters long and it's maybe 300 meters wide max. And it starts 50 meters below the surface. So a shark can literally like swim around, swim over, swim under. And the boys is this thing called a drum line. And so like Courtney explained, it's literally a hook with usually a big piece of meat on it with the theory being that a if a shark is swimming to the shore to be like, nom, 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 I love eating people, it might pause for a second and be like, hang on, let me get this steak. <laughs> That's on the end of a hook. And we'll paddle around it, but just oh. to make sure, yeah. Just, we'll just dangle our arms in like as a little tempting treat, you know, just for funsies. <laughs> it's so simple. Why would we do that? I don't understand. <laughs> Neither. Um, what is something about the sport that you wish people knew, you know, like an everyday Australian, what is something about surf life saving you wish that they had a grasp of or an understanding of? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Mate, um, I only ask the good questions. You do. That is very true. That's why I've got notes here. To, no, no, no. Really. <laughs> <laughs> no, you hit me with the good questions. Um, you do it anyway, generally when we catch up. So it's Yeah. All right. Question. All right. Calm down. Um, Pretty. Um, I think, I think just how um, I'm just trying to think. I always use the word amazing, so I'm trying to be, you know, speaking to you. Um, I'm learning words off you all the time, so I'm trying to think of a better word. But just how I guess, oh, unique, um, incredible, um, our our sport is. Um, it's you know, it's up there with with one of the best sports in the world. And the reason I say that is because it's. You know, sport, essentially, when you look at it, is entertainment. Um, and that entertainment draws down to, um, you know, you're entertaining people. Um, that's kind of the, you know, that's what the TV looks at. That's what all, you know, this and that. And But really, at the end of the day, entertainment equals um, you're inspiring people. Like, you're, you're, you're wanting to bring out the best in people with what you do. So you're trying to bring out the best in yourself with what you do with entertaining people that look at that and are inspired and determined to then live their life. And they don't have to be an athlete. They don't have to be um, a swimmer or a, you know, a nipper or whatever. They could, they could watch you and, and bring that into their own, um, their own goals and their own inspiration. And I feel like I do have people who contact me who aren't in the sport, who don't do the sport, but, um, and it's really cool that you said, you know, so many years ago um, I was wearing pink and, you know, you know, bringing that kind of girly side to things. And, and that's where people have, you know, there has been some women who have been drawn to me because of that, probably that um, feminine side of things I've brought to the sport. So I think it would be amazing for people to just see, um, yeah, how, how big of a, how powerful our sport is. You know, there's, I think like, a lot of people know this, but a lot of people don't think about it, that we're the only, you know, athletes in the whole entire world where what we do to entertain and inspire people is also saving lives. Mm. Um, so at the end of the day, like, we kind of get the best of both worlds, really. I essentially think, like, the skills that I'm doing 
Um, you know, obviously I'm very lucky to be an athlete. You know, it's, it's a very cool life. You know, I get to do cool things. We get to, you know, I get to keep um, really fit every day um, and, and it, you know, for my health and everything like that. Um, hopefully it gets me to live longer. But um, it's, you know, it's a very healthy lifestyle. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, and I love all sports, don't get me wrong, but I just feel like ours is super special because the skills that I'm learning, I'm going to be able to swim out there and save someone the quickest. I'm going to be able to read the surf and be like, you know, there might be some holiday people coming down and be like, hey, you know, just casually walking by, please don't swim in there. There's a massive reef. Like I can just tell people or I know, I can sense the water, I can see the water, um, I can paddle you know, be the fastest one to paddle out there and save someone. I've, many times I've just been casually at the beach. I remember I was in my bikinis, sunbaking, had my, you know, not top fully off, but tits out. Like, you know, I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, people, you know, like before I went out, um, I was like, oh my God, did, you know, I did the bikinis up in the worst possible swimwear, went straight out there, got them, brought them back in. And that was just, you know, I was just chilling out of the beach. And um, to, to be, and I guess to be in that position when someone is about to drown and go under, where I brought someone in, it's it actually like I feel right now. It actually makes me, I feel like I have, you know, not anxiety, but I, I feel this this really wave of. Um, did you like that? I feel this wave. <laughs> yeah, you want to write the next book? Um, Come on. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel this wave that draws over I me mean, of like sadness and um, you know. If I wasn't there, what could have happened? And and seeing someone, I remember this this young man that I, I rescued, his eyes were fully like just blank. Mm. He was that he was in that much shock. And for me just to pull him in, which um which is crazy because for me to do to bring someone in or to swim out there and bring someone in against a rip is e- like when I say easy for me. You know, like I, I work on my strength and I work on my swimming yeah. power and all those kind of things. But yeah, I've, I've just rambled on so much. But I think that's what's so that I think that's what's so special about our sport. Absolutely, sure. yeah. And it is like it's very hard to point to like that. That point you make is pretty extraordinary. About you know, there's not many athletes that you can point to in a professional setting who know what it's like to have to resuscitate someone on the beach or. Um, you know, bring somebody back from the dead in some cases or bring them back fully clothed, like how hard it is to drag a person in physically, but also if they're wearing like full head to toe clothing, it makes them so much heavier and so much harder. Um, Obviously we know people who've passed away in the sport and tangential to the sport. And it's just, you know, that thing that happens as you get older, not everybody gets older with you. Do you think people have an understanding about how dangerous the sport is? Do you think people fully grasp that idea? I think, and then bringing back to when I said in Portsea, like no fear. Mm. Um, I certainly never had any fear of, you know, dying in the ocean or or anything like that because I think I've been lucky to be able to be able to control myself or I felt like I've always been in control of waves. Um, But, yeah, certainly as time went on, I mean, I had a friend um, who I, you know, grew up with and um, he, yeah, he was um, the shallow water. Um, what's that one called again when they... The free um, diving. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like happened, that happened to him a long time ago, like 10 years ago. Mm. And that kind of, that freaked me out for a bit there, certainly holding my breath. I was yeah, for sure, because he wasn't like a... Um, 
he wasn't somebody who just did it as a hobby. He was the same level of, you know, high-end professional that you were. He was on the circuit with, you know, you and all the other athletes. Yeah, yeah. So that sometimes certainly plays across my mind, even though that was so long ago. Um, That probably brought the first tiny bit of fear Mm. into um, the water and me holding my breath. I used to love to hold my breath, but for ages you know like for minutes I'd be under there just like trying to test myself and <laughs> you wouldn't see me doing that today I, I definitely no, don't, fuck no. don't you can't play with hypoxia because it's the kind of thing is it's like when you're starting to feel symptoms it's already too late you know you're already seconds away from blacking out by the time you can register what's going on and usually you're too yeah. far from the surface as it is so it's yeah. it's tricky and it's so funny you say like that you've never felt fear out there and you've always felt like you were in control of the waves. <laughs> I have truly never felt like that is my fear. Mark Wahlberg at the end of A Perfect Storm is like my greatest fear, being left out to see, oh to die in like 20, 30 foot. Because like that, there's just so much unpredictability to it as a sport, but also like, you know, people have been hit in the head, knocked unconscious and killed. Like, um, I broke my jaw and had a perforated eardrum, not from anything I could control, but somebody else lost their craft and it hit me in the side of their head. Like there's been times when I, I woke up unconscious, um, in the water and I'm like, I don't want to say a pool of blood cause it's the ocean, but like with blood around me because somebody else had stacked it and the tip of their board had gone into my face. So now I have this like dope scar down the left side, but if there hadn't been people there, it's like, do you wake up? Like, is there someone else there to put you on a board? There's so many things that just are completely out of your control. And I like, it's such a boss statement <laughs> from you to be like, yeah, man, I never felt like, uh, I've never been afraid of the surf. I'm just out there doing my thing. Oh, but yeah, but going on from that, I certainly, um, yeah, certainly in the last few years have found myself, yeah, a little bit of fear, De- definitely. Um, there has been a couple of deaths and I think, you know, as time goes on, you think, oh, you know, if you do hit your head, which we all do, you know, like yeah, 100%. hit my head the other day just from walking under something and you kind of feel really... <laughs> you are very tall terrible. though. You are very tall and it's very hard when you're such a tall woman. <laughs> I don't know, when Nick's six foot, my partner's six foot seven and I'm only six foot, I don't feel very tall. I feel like it. I do feel like a midget, even though I hit my head on things. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. Because, yeah, if you're out in the surf and you hit your head, it's like, all, you know, rugby players, they get knocked out all the time. But if, like, if we get knocked out, you know, that, that could be it. So there's certainly, yeah, that, that fear has certainly, um, has certainly come around definitely in the last few years compared to kind of when I was talking about Portsea when I was only 21. Um, you just, I think it's like everything, isn't it? Like I wouldn't go on a roller coaster anymore. Definitely not a dream world. I mean, shit, like stuff. Oh, <laughs> like you would, you would not pay me to do no. that. I mean, I even think yeah. about stuff like from police reporter days that I did and that we were were required to do. It's like I'd, I'd never do that now, you know, like just, yeah. you know, you like as you get older, you like you know better, hopefully you do better, but in like hindsight of youth, um, you know, all sorts of crazy shit, getting on the back of mopeds and stuff and fanging it from like one break to the other with paddles and boards and things like we could have died like six different ways, you know, but at the time it's just like, it's part of the culture and yeah, just, yeah, and you, you know, and 
I think, um, but as, you know, you do get older and, and you do get wiser, that's just how it is. I think um, I try and still hold on to that piece of, um, of not being afraid um, because that essentially I feel that was one of, you know, as you said, like I hadn't been on a ski for very long. Mm. How could I be beating people when I hadn't really? It's because of that, that no, no fear. Yeah. Um, just believe in yourself, just go out and do it. So um, I do try very hard to hold on to a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but just try to be smarter. Just try to race smarter, be aware of people around and skis flying left, right and centre. Um, <laughs> they really do fly. <laughs> Truly nothing sparks fear in your heart, really. like seeing a fucking 15-foot fiberglass ski that you know is hollow hitting yeah. straight for your face. They literally have invisible wings. <laughs> I actually saw the other day, and I don't know it's hard that, some people haven't um, seen it before, but this long ski bounced twice in the ocean. So, you know, oh, it flings up. Yeah, like vertical. And bounce, yeah, vertically. So, you can imagine like a big solid, I don't know, surfboard. But it's so hard. Like, if I'll put a link in the show notes for people who don't know what a surf ski looks like, but nice. that strikes fear in your heart. Like, it would always be such a bad omen if you were like at Aussie titles or something, or you're pulling up for a race at Worlds and if you saw somebody in the race before you dragging their ski that's broken in half up onto the sand, you'd be like, that is a terrible sign because if the surf or like the shore break or whatever is strong enough to snap a ski, it's like, oh, how's my spine going to fare? Yeah. Um, last, I know you've got places to go, things to do, people to see, uh, stuff to shoot. So I'm just going to round up on a little memory. Um, I mentioned Pat O'Keefe earlier, who was our coach when we trained and lived together. Um, he gets a little bit of an acknowledgement in the back of the book. He was a pretty seminal figure. Um, like I fucking hated him when I was like a trainer, <laughs> like when I was training, I hated Pat cause he was, you know, the one who would make us go further distances and stuff, but we always had really good philosophical conversations. But Anyway, we got on much better once I'd quit the sport and um, I'll never forget (laughs) him calling me up this one time after I'd moved to Sydney um, and Courtney was on, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And I had my, it was a Monday night, I was watching it. I didn't like anyone else on the show except Courtney. She was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, Court, get in there, Pelican. And um, my phone rings. It's like 9 o'clock on a Monday night. And I look down, it's like Pat O'Keefe's number. And I was like, oh, what's Patty Cakes up to? Like, that's weird. It's calling me at 9 on a Monday night. Like, something must have gone horribly wrong. And so I answer, and it's, he goes, Maria, it's Pat. And I go, oh, hey, hey, Pat, <laughs> how's it going? He's like, you watching Courtney on I'm a Celebrity? And I was like, yeah, Pat, of course. <laughs> and he's like, what's she doing on I'm a Celebrity? And we ended up having this in-depth conversation because he didn't understand. He didn't understand, like, if you're a professional athlete, why you would do anything outside of the scope of a professional athlete. Like, he thought that any time you were on I'm a Celebrity, that was time away from a pool that you could have been in mindlessly (laughs) doing laps. And I was saying to him that, like, you know, people have to think about the long game and trying to bridge careers into avenues outside of a sport where you only have X amount of time on your physical body. You know, you can't do it forever unless you're in lawn bowls. Like, maybe you can be a professional lawn bowl player (laughs) forever. 
<laughs> but um, he said to me just as we're ending the call, he was like, oh, so you're writing like werewolf books now and stuff. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, I bought it. And I'm doing a terrible impression, but that is genuinely how Pat spoke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and he, he said that he had bought, um, his wife had bought a copy of my first book, Who's Afraid? And he hadn't read it yet. He wasn't sure if he would, but <laughs> he just wanted me to know that he had a copy of it. Um, and then he hung up the phone. And then it was a few weeks later, maybe a month actually, that he passed away. He was quite old. Um, so yeah, that has just been an always like sort of interesting conversation to me is that even though I'm not in the sport anymore, you're still in the sport, Pat's no longer here. These ties that bind us through different like eras and decades can be, can be really interesting and bind people from overseas as well, because you have athletes from all over the world come to the Gold Coast specifically, which is where you train. And you build these friendships with people like the South Africans who we always used to hang out with a lot and the Kiwis and, you know, Frenchie and all of the Frenchies that would come over. Do you feel like the relationships that you've made in Surf Life Saving, do you think those are things that will stay with you once you retire from the sport eventually? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, now, that's an easy question to answer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. And, you know... Throughout the sport, you, um, you're, you're obviously one of my best friends in my life and um, how grateful am I? And for the sport, look, you know, there's, there's things that um, I'm so grateful for, you know, obviously like goals that I've achieved, um, it's set up, you know, my career and, and things that I want to do after and all these kind of things. But, yeah, the friendships that I have within, that I've made from Surf Life Saving has been, you know, incredible. like look at us now, like, as you said, like back when we were 15, 16, it's just if I never would have done nippers, never come across. And we have completely different lives. And 100%. as we've said so many times, like people can have, you know, we literally do have completely different lives. But, you know, we love each other so much and we get along and we'll, we'll need at least six hours to like have a cup of coffee and catch up. Um, and, and Pat was, yeah, I, I think um, I felt the same as how you felt about him. There was just something always like he's very mysterious man, but in so many ways, like, you know, he was his own person. He did so many things that you were like, holy Jesus, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, for example, he got me a scooter when my mum and dad said to him, because I lived with him when I first moved here, do not let Courtney ever go on a scooter next day. Oh, I bought you a scooter. To, I bought you a scooter, you know. So I can't do the voice. No, you did good. And I was like, only oh, 70, I was like, oh my God, like you do everything that your mum and dad say. And I was like, oh my God, my mum and dad just told me not to. Do that. <laughs> he used to like, make us like, drive that fucking truck as well. Like he had, there were like trucks that the club had. Prado or Pajero, uh, Land Cruiser, big Land Cruiser. Uh, a Land Cruiser, but also like the minivan for tugging like all the craft. And we would like, we had all just gotten our licenses, you know, we only had our licenses for a few years. And he's like, yeah, oh, that's funny. Like the big land cruiser with the tinted windows. I filled up petrol for the first time ever because like, I never, I don't know, mum, dad, I remember this. And I put in fifteen dollars. That's all I had in my wallet, and it didn't even move the line. <laughs> like when I drove away, I was like, oh, it looked like it didn't even. Uh, anyway, I remember was, you picking me up in that land cruiser and saying you felt like fifty cent because it was like the most ridiculous fucking car had these rims on it 
I was like the black tinder windows. You could have no idea who was in there and just, and the black wheel, like the black wheels. And oh my God, everyone on the Gold Coast used to beep at me and say hello. <laughs> and they're like, and they'd always double take. They're like, it's not a little bald head man. <laughs> it's this person with a blonde bun or ponytail. Um, but yeah, I love the people I've met. I mean, you know, as I said before, like you're, you know, you're so special. Pat was so special. I mean, Carla Gilbert was my hero growing up. She's one of my closest friends. Trevor Hendy, again, it's so crazy that my two heroes was Carla Gilbert and Trevor Hendy, and they're two of my closest friends today. Like, I yeah. speak to them every week, all the time. People um, we grew up watching on television in the 90s when Iron Woman's yeah. and Iron Man series were televised during primetime, yeah. you know, that was, they were our celebrities. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I remember. Um, Trev was Vitabricks and Vitabits or, or Weetbix or whatever it was and he'd have like 12 or something with banana so I'd always have to have 13 like to beat him and you know what I mean like you wouldn't know this like I was only eight doing that but he's one of my greatest friends like um, he's incredible and I've got you know friends from New South Wales that you know I've been I've held contact with for so long it's um, and all your coaches you know Dennis Cottrell he's a really close friend of mine he's been you know, the greatest, one of the greatest swimming coaches um, mm. in the history, you know, in the world. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so he's amazing. He calls me all the time. So I've just had such a beautiful, yeah, beautiful time and the friendships are certainly something I'll have forever, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. All our broken crafts and broken dreams, but our friendships will be forever. <laughs> beautiful red ski and I like it was like the, my first paddle it was a tiny little wave and I went down at broken heart yeah I it was the first time you'd paddled it from memory like first yeah. time in the ocean oh man I have so many crazy stories like thinking back to things like that even when we were just setting up this call you know we were talking about Pat getting mad that um you know there used to be houses that people from the surf club would live in um, when they would have different competitors come from all around the world and all around the country. And like, if someone wasn't at training when they were supposed to be, Pat would just show up at your house and like, you know, with a saucepan full of water and dunk it on you until you went there. <laughs> it's just like all sorts of crazy shit. It's, um, it's, yeah. the sheets ripped, ripped off. <laughs> God. The other day, I was having a nap and I slept through my alarm and came and just, um, just pulled off the, um, the doona. Fuck that. Thank God I never lived in a clubhouse. You'd never find my address. <laughs> That's the dream. So stories like that and characters like that are the people who end up inspiring, um, you know, some of the characters that pop up in the book and some of the characters that we start to meet in this chapter. But also the environment for which they have to negotiate through. It's like very specific. So I want to say thank you so much for giving up so much of your time and being so generous with your answers. <laughs> Going to walk down memory lane, um, talking about all this stuff and adding a perspective to it because it was really important for me to have you on to sort of like talk through some of the great things about the sport, some of the scary things, some of the dangerous things because this isn't just a – a made up environment. It's an environment that people live in and work in and survive in every day. So getting to have um, your perspective is, is super invaluable and also just fine. Cause like, I love chatting to you. So. <laughs> and I'm your favorite person you've had on. Yeah. You're the only person actually. <laughs> oh my God. You're 
sorry, you can't say that. Yeah, you're the first guest. Blake would, it, so it's just me and Blake usually, and so you're the very first guest that we've had. So. I didn't feel special for a moment because you said I'm the only person. I said because I'm the favourite. But then I feel really special. I am the first person. Well, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to have any other guest until we had you because it's like oh, you don't do much better than that. You know what I mean? Like it's a book set in the world. Like the only guest that would have been better than you and more relevant to the story was like if I could interview a merman. And the odds of that happening <laughs> are quite incredibly low. Like my journalism skills aren't that good. So I didn't really want to have any guests on until, oh yeah. Um, I didn't want to have any guests on until, until we got you and you could like really set the tone for this world. And um, yeah. Yay. Yay. Thank you. Anytime. Anytime. Mate, you're the best. Um, where can people find you? You have a website, CourtneyHancock.com.au from memory. That's it. Very good memory. Yeah. I'll put all the links for Courtney's stuff in the show notes. You can check those out. And um, thanks again. Thank you. It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis. Read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations, and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Hit Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights too, please like, subscribe, and share with your mermaids.